Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Michael Betts. He's a professor of microbiology at the Pennsylvania Institute for Immunology. Uh, We'll be talking about uh, immunology and uh, our response to it, our microbiome's response to it. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Thank you very much, Richard. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your research and your work. What are you uh, focused on currently? Well, currently we're focusing on uh, trying to understand human uh, immune responses to COVID virus. Historically, my lab has been exclusively working on studying the immune response in, in people to various viral infections, uh, focusing on HIV. Um, but also other common viruses uh, that, that we all get, uh, including influenza and Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, and so on. How diverse? Um, I know the mechanisms by which viruses infect us are diverse, and I'm sure our response is probably diverse as well. So can you step through some of the viruses that you've worked on and, and talk about you know, how do they affect us, and then how do we respond to some of the, uh, the highlights? Well, the, actually, a, a lot of the, the typical viruses, the initial response is pretty similar. So you know, HIV infection or EBV, which, of course, you know, causes mononucleosis, influenza, all these things during the acute period of time of infection manifest in very similar ways. They may be doing different things inside your body, but you feel the same way. So, so, so you will feel... Uh, an acute fever, uh, uh, myalgia, which is, um, uh, you know, being tired and, and, and listless. And um, you, you will essentially go through this phase where your immune system is very, very active. And that's, that's essentially what makes you have these symptoms. And, and during that time period, you, you will generate an immune response that, that either will or will not be able to, to eliminate that or control that infection. And so, so, so in a case of something like influenza, um, you generate a very strong immune response, usually as a, as a child when you're first exposed or, or, or by a vaccine. Um, and then, and then you, will, you will clear that virus and you will generate a long-term immune response to that, that that will protect you in the future. Something like HIV or EBV or CMV, you generate the same type of response at the beginning, but they then manifest in different ways because your immune system is unable to effectively clear those. And so you then are forced to live with them uh, for the rest of your life. When your immune system is unable to clear a virus, um, is it the virus adapting and then taking a different tact? Or is it uh, your immune system forcing the virus into a new regime where it's is it continuing its previous action? Um, it's just manifesting differently because of the action of your immune system. Is it possible it's, to figure that out? 
It's a really great question. And, and, and basically, every scenario that you just introduced kind of happens uh, for di- in different cases. So, so if you take something like uh, EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, or, or CMV, cytomegalovirus, the, the human population has lived with these, these viruses for, for tens of millions of years. And those viruses have, have adapted to live with us uh, without killing us, pretty much unless you get immunosuppressed and then they can cause problems and, and they evade your immune response in some ways. They, they use it in some ways. Uh, They sequester themselves uh, in, in places uh, where the immune response may not be as efficient at eliminating them. For instance, something like HIV, which has been in the population, of course, for, for a much uh, that we know of for a much decreased amount of time, you know, you know, on the order of, of maybe a hundred years that we know of, that virus is still in the, is adapting continuously. And, and inside a person who's infected, that virus continually um, uh, mutates to, to evade the active immune response against it. And, and of course it is pathogenic in, may, in, in many, if not most people. But it takes, of course, a long time. And during that time, the, the immune response will continually try to be effective, but, but the virus is, is always a step ahead in this case. Something like flu, um, you have sort of different situations of, of antigenic drift and, and antigenic shift, um, which are well documented. It's not, not the topic of my research, uh, but, but that's sort of a, a more population level change in the virus over time. Uh, either to evade uh, evade antibody responses or, or whatnot. Based on how viruses change that uh, that stay with us, you know, HIV, cytomegalovirus, et cetera, how do you guess that the virus is, um, I mean, it appears that it's, as if it's coordinating its activity or no, does it, you think it's using, you know, our cells um, and has some kind of viral quorum sensing or, you know, coordinated action? Well, unlike bacteria, which can kind of, I think dynamically respond to their environment. Uh, viruses, of course, you know they're 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 just machines uh, in a sense, and so they respond, but but they don't do so proactively. It basically is is more of a survival of the fittest situation for viruses. So so the so the best case example would be HIV, where you, you have this continual outgrowth of of mutations, and the reason why that happens is not because the virus knows what's going on. It, it doesn't have a, a way to, to proactively adapt. It's it essentially the virus is replicating to such a high degree. And, and, it's, and it's the way that, it, that during its replication, it makes a lot of mistakes. And, and probably the vast majority of those mistakes are, are dead ends for the virus, but some of them will not be. And, and, and those that are not then are going to be the viruses that the immune system sees. And some of those will again be dead ends because the immune system will be effective against it. But then there's, there's even one or two uh, at any one point that, that might uh, you know, not kill the virus itself and then also allow it to evade the immune response. And that might sound like a really inefficient process, but, but you have tens of millions of viruses, uh, you know, new, new viruses produced per day in a person who, who's actively infected and just by chance, you're going to have these have these variants occur, um, and, and then they outgrow, and, and and then your immune response is forced to adapt to those again and again and again, and the virus adapts again and again continuously. 
again, it's not an active process, it's a passive process in this case uh, for, for all the viruses. The, the, the really long-term viruses uh, that have been in the population, the, the herpes viruses, including EBV and CMV, they have co-evolved with us for a very long time and, and have very many actually very interesting components of their machinery uh, proteins that, that are either completely homologous or partially homologous to our own proteins. And, and, and they do this because they can then modulate to some degree the way the immune system responds to it. So it almost seems like an active thing, but, it, but basically they've stolen pieces and, and, ad- and, and they've mutated uh, to allow the virus to, to, to persist. Yeah. What are some of the ways in which, uh, you know, CMV and, you know, the herpes-related viruses have co-evolved with us. Any specifics that are really interesting? So probably the easiest, the easiest one I could, I could think of quickly, uh, and I'm not sure how much you want me to get into the, the details here. Um, so, so CMV encodes a, a homologue to uh, a protein called uh, MHC class 1. And, and MHC class one is, is, is stands for major histocompatibility complex uh, one. Uh, it is it is a protein that's found on on nearly every human cell, and and this is the primary protein that is recognized by uh, CD8 T cells, which are which are the the the, the actually the type of cell that my lab studies. Um, and and the, the function of CD8 T cells is to is to kill, one of the main functions is to kill or suppress virally infected cells, and and so CMV through and, and really I have to say that the mechanism is not super well defined, but but CMV encodes this MHC homologue, and and it's thought to either be a decoy or to distract the CD8 T cells or maybe even to render them energic or or non-responsive in some ways. Um, so, such that so the CDA comes along and sees this protein that normally it uses to target the cell for killing if it's infected, but now it's getting this this alternate protein that that maybe in some ways allows the infected cell to to not be recognized efficiently. There, there there's other proteins uh, that that the, the herpes viruses express like cytokine homologs. So cytokines are are proteins that, that are, can be growth factors for, for the immune system, different types of cells, uh, or, or even non-immune cells. Um, they, can, they can activate the cells in different ways and, and sort of in some ways potentiate immune responses. And so, so the herpes viruses also encode uh, homologs of some of these different types of cytokines as well. And, and again, just sort of probably modulate the immune system in just enough of a different way that, that it allows the immune response to not be as effective. So and then, is the uh, is is the virus doing this when it's inside a given cell that normally would be targeted by the immune system? And it's masking it, or is this on the virion itself? It has this protein, so the virion hides. So, so, so the things I'm talking about here, and spe- specifically, would be the infected cell. So, when you think about things on the virion itself, that's mostly going to be impacting potentially antibody recognition. Um, you know, and for example, when, when you think of, of uh, the flu vaccine, you're primarily stimulating antibodies to, to allow you to maybe, maybe not 100% prevent you from ever getting infected with the virus, but, but clearing that, that virus or, or just decreasing your chance of getting because you have antibodies there. The things I'm talking about here are more things that, that, that are important for T cells, 
which is what again what my lab studies. The, the other really fascinating thing, um, and actually this this actually is really the topic of what our lab has been focused on for the last several years, is the idea that not only do these viruses, and this is HIV is especially doing this, not only do they modulate the immune system, but they actually are taking advantage of, of the immune system's sort of normal processes to allow themselves to continue replicating. And what I mean by that is they preferentially infect types of cells that are physically located in your body in areas where CD8 T cells normally, they're present, but, but they don't necessarily have the same functional ability to eliminate those cells. So, so here in this case, we're talking about lymph, lymph nodes. And, and of course, you know, lymph nodes, whenever you have an acute viral illness, your lymph nodes swell up. And that's where you feel your neck and you can feel these swollen things in your neck. That those are your lymph nodes in your neck. And, and, and that's sort of the site of priming of the immune response. And, but it's not normally a site where you would want an infection to be happening, if you understand what I mean. But in the case of EBV and HIV, their primary targets of those viruses are cells that reside in those tissues. And so, so it, it, in a sense, it, it's also another level of, the, of, of evasion that these viruses are doing by taking advantage of being in a place where... It almost might sound counterintuitive. This is a the lymph node is a place where you induce immune responses, mm. but it's all but it's also a place where you you're, you're not thinking that you have a pathogen there. You're not thinking you need to to keep an immune response going there. And and what we found is that CD8 T cells, which which are commonly called killer T cells or cytotoxic T cells, they are present in lymph nodes, but they actually don't seem to kill things in lymph nodes. They do that outside of the lymph nodes. And and, it, and 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 we believe that this is a uh, essentially an evolution process that that you don't want to eliminate the cells that are important for making immune responses. That's what would happen if a CD8 was killing things in your lymph nodes. And so so the vi- these viruses, especially HIV in this case, uh, very effectively hides in these lymph nodes, and, and therefore you have ineffective abilities to control it. Well. I know, like in the, uh, I believe it was in 15 or 1600s, right? Rene Descartes said that animals were living machines. And, and then for a while, people thought bacteria were living machines. And now it seems like a growing number of scientists are saying viruses are alive too. So maybe it's, uh, it, it may be good to consider at times that they are alive and then look at their behavior in that context and see if that, uh, that tells you anything different. It's just an idea. I, I don't. I don't think there's any evidence that there's any any brain to a virus, right? It it it, it it's a, an exceptionally efficient machine that that uh, adapts to its environment, um, but it's not doing so consciously, you know, or or proactively in a sense, right? It it, it just it just it's it's all a numbers game with viruses. It, it, if you if you remove ninety nine percent of the virus because of an effective immune response and one percent gets out, that's fine for the virus, right? It doesn't care. Um, it, it, one of the things we stu- we study a lot uh, in in the field that I'm in is 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 CD eight T cell escape in the sense of HIV, where the virus is very very adept at at just making single amino acid mutations that completely abrogate the ability of CD8 T cells to recognize an infected cell. But the virus doesn't know, the virus doesn't have any idea what the CD8 T cell is recognizing, right? So, so we're talking here about, you know, a, a, a relatively decent sized virus and, and it's a nine amino acid 
uh, stretch of protein that, that the CDH recognized. So, so how would the virus know proactively that this nine amino acid peptide would be what a CDH T cell targets? It has no idea because it, it doesn't have ideas. And, and, and essentially it, it's just the numbers game. The virus is, is, is mutating continuously without pressure without pressure, it still mutates because it's, it has, just makes a lot of errors. Most of those, as I said before, are going to be dead ends. And then, and then you'll just by chance have that one virus that's mutated the right spot and it grows out and then it takes over the population. So, so, so yeah. Yeah. So you're saying that um, if it's composed of, let's say nine amino acids, one gets modified and, and there are cases where that allows it to escape the, uh, the CD8 cells. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's very beautiful literature on this from when when escape was first described that showed HIV and this is work from from Rodney Phillips' lab uh, in Oxford um, showed in in monozygotic twins who were both HIV infected, so they were responding to the same they had the same MHC class one genes. They, their CD8s were recognizing the exact same in this case uh, uh, ten amino acid string, if I remember correctly. And from, from the entire virus, right? And, and in one of the twins, the virus figured out how to escape by random chance. And that particular individual went on to progress rapidly and, and, and died. Whereas the other, the other twin, there, the virus did not manage to escape and the CD8s continued to be effective. So, so just a single, depending, this is not, it's not always this black and white. This, this is a very idealized circumstance, but, but it, it just demonstrates the power that these CD8 T cells can have in, in limiting the viruses and also tells you the importance, you know, how important they are from the virus standpoint. The virus doesn't like them. Um, and, it, and it would want to escape from all of them if it could. Sometimes it manages, in, in the case of HIV, for the most part, it manages to do so quite efficiently. Um, things like EBV and CMV, they, don't, they do not have the same degree of error generation. So, so they instead, they're not very efficient at all of escaping these responses, but they have these modulatory uh, capacities that, that I described earlier. So in, in a given host, um, because of the high rate of mutation of, of viruses, I would think you'd have different, I mean, eventual populations of different kinds of viruses. And I don't know if they would compete or if they would just, you know, infect a person in different ways. Like, uh, you know, what happens over time in someone with HIV or, you know, Epstein-Barr, et cetera? Like, would, would, yeah. have, have their viral loads been sampled and is there a diversity in population? Because of these mutations, yeah. So, so, so let's just be very clear. You, 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 the herpes viruses, like EBV, do not do this. Okay, so, so this is you know specifically talking about HIV in this case. So, so, and, and the answer to your question is is absolutely. And so, so there's there's a great degree of of evolution of the virus within an individual. And at any one time, you'll find what's called a quasi species within within one infected person there will be a, a typically a dominant virus, uh, which may be sort of the virus of the day that happened to be the most fit variant that just happened to start replicating that day. Um, but then you'll find a whole array of what we would call singletons, just, you know, d- depending on the depth that you're sequencing. Um, and, and you'll just find, you know, tons of these, uh, of these rare, more rare variants 
And, and three days from now, one of those rare variants might be more fit than the virus that, that you had three days before, and you'll see the swing in the whole population. The other thing that, that's, that's really interesting about the virus is, is, and this was demonstrated a number of years ago, actually, uh, by Simon Malal, um, is, is population level evolution of the virus as well. And what I mean by population level, I mean the human population. So, so and this is in regards to CD8 T cells. And so, so basically what happens is, you know, if one person is infected and they have a, their, their particular MHC alleles, which are, again are what CD8 T cells recognize, uh, a peptide from the virus attached to that MHC, um, one person's infected, and then so they have their set of these MHC genes, and the virus has evolved within that person to be effective at escaping those immune responses. If that person transmits the virus to another person who has either some or all of those same MHC genes, the virus does not need to escape because it's already escaped in the first person. It goes into a, a host now that also is going to apply the same pressure. And so, so, so you will then essentially keep the virus evolving in that same direction. If you transmit to a person who has different MHC alleles, you now force that virus to, to recalibrate and it will do so very efficiently, but, but, but it, it will, it will change. And so, so essentially if you have the virus going through populations of people where you have a lot of shared MHC alleles, you'll start swinging the virus towards an accumulation of escapes that can deal with that particular MHC allele, if you understand what I mean. Um, so it's so evolution within and amongst people, right? Yeah, when the virus changes um, certain cell populations, MHC, so is it, it's, it's literally contributing an extra peptide to those cells and their MHCs are changed forever? Or is there a no, chance no, no, to no, observe no. them? Uh, no, the, the, the host cells are not are not altered in this sense. No, this is okay. the virus is adapting. The virus is changing its sequence. Yeah, yeah. It's not it's not the host cell changing anything. Not not in a traditional sense. No. Well, how is the um, change in recognition uh, accomplished if it's just the virus itself changing? So, yeah. So so like where where is the recognition event happening um, in this case? In this case, MHC, uh, the MHC protein is expressed on the cell surface of an infected cell. It, but, but whenever that protein is produced inside the cell, you have a piece of the virus attached to it. It's, it's basically the nature of the MHC to, to bind to these short peptide fragments uh, that are derived from both host and from any, any protein that's made by the cell it can get chopped up and put into this MHC molecule. And that MHC is then transported to the cell surface where CDA T cells are continuously scanning all over your body, uh, looking for things they don't like, in a sense. And, 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 and as, a, as a neonate and a, a, you know, early in life, your body trains itself to not recognize itself very effectively. Right. So, so, so then it can tell the difference between something foreign and something self. Um, and so, so when the virus is inside of a cell and it's replicating, it's producing its proteins, those foreign proteins get chopped up along with everything else and, and they can get randomly put onto MHC and that MHC is put to the cell surface. And then, and then the CD8s recognize that peptide from the virus in the context of the MHC molecule. And then they can, it triggers them and they, kill the target through a variety of mechanisms or they respond to that, that target, that infected cell. 
I get you, but is there um is there ever an event where that cell is now uh, it can somehow clear the virus, and if so, does it retain the MHC modification, or is there is there ability for that cell to divide, and if so, are the daughter cells uh, containing the MHC variant? So, so that ever happen? Yeah, it's not a variant. Okay, so it's not a permanent change, right? So, well, so, alteration, alteration. well, it's not even an alteration. So the peptide, the piece of the peptide is not permanently, it doesn't get, does not get encoded into the cell. It's not part of the genome of the cell. That peptide can fall off of the MHC, so it's not a permanent bond. You know, the, 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 the MHC is just designed to be able to bind to these fragments it doesn't alter the MHC protein backbone itself whatsoever. So, so that MHC, which which has this piece of the virus stuck onto it, essentially, that's what's getting presented. That that has a, a certain amount of time that it's accessible on the cell surface to the CDAT cell, and then it goes away or falls apart or whatever. Okay, so it's like a temporary. Exactly. Like, it's like wearing a hat, I guess, like a baseball yeah. hat. Or that's something a, that's that's a that's a very good way to look at it. Yes. Yes, and you could change your hat. You know, it's, it doesn't matter, right? Exactly. Okay, well, that's interesting too. The fact that it's not permanent—that's also useful if it could be harnessed some, somehow. You know? Well, that's a, that's a basis of a lot of. You know, there's a lot of vaccine strategies out there to try to stimulate CDA T cells, and 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 you can uh, in, in mice, it's a you know very effective strategy. You can even just you can just make a plasmid uh, that, that encodes one peptide sometimes. And you can, if you do it the right way, you can, you can put that into to the animal. They, the cells will start making this one single peptide that's foreign and you can generate CDAT cells against it very effectively. Unfortunately, that, that simple strategy hasn't worked uh, in, in animals higher up than mice, really, um, not effectively. But th- this is essentially the, the premise for a CDAT cell based vaccine or therapeutic um, in this sense, yes. When you're amping up CD8 cells to uh, to recognize, you know, other things, how do you do that? And is it a training process? Like, do you f- expose them to, you know, these peptides that would normally alter MHC and therefore they can recognize it? Or, you know, how do you train the cells to recognize things they should or they normally wouldn't? Well, I mean, it, this, so, you know, to be totally fair, this is not exactly what my lab does. Um, but, but certainly, you know, in the sense of a, of a vaccine, typically what one would do is, is you might, um, well, first of all, just, just, you know, giving a foreign protein uh, or peptide in this case can, can just generate the CD8s, you know, if you've done it in, in somewhat the right manner. You can further amplify them by adding cytokines that might make those CD8T cells proliferate better or make them differentiate into different states. There's a variety of cytokines that can do this. Um, and so, so, so that, that's sort of thinking about like adjuvants uh, that are commonly used in vaccines might, might sort of change the, the complexity or the flavor of that immune response and skew things towards CD8s or skew things towards other types of T cells like CD4 T cells or maybe even skew towards an antibody type of response um, is commonly done in the, in, in, in the vaccine field. So um, yeah, I've been asking you the questions I want. Um, what are some of the major questions that you're trying to answer right now with your research? And is it in relation to COVID, you know, like, are you seeing, are you deep in it with COVID yet? Are you? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes, we are. And, and so, 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 but let me start with the first part of the question. So, you know, my passion for this research is really 
maybe somewhat self-serving is to try to understand how we or even myself fight these diseases. And I've just always been fascinated by this. And, and, and in my particular lab focused on, on T cell responses as, as, as the direction, although there are certain plenty of different directions one could go with that type of a, a global question. It's really just to try to understand how people fight these diseases. And, and so we've typically studied, and, and, and I should say most, most uh, immunologists such as myself uh, typically would be doing this from animal models uh, like mice or, or maybe monkeys. Uh, we, we've tended to bias everything we do towards tr- trying to understand immune responses in people because that's what I, that's what I really want to know about. And so, so, of course, COVID presents, a, 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 from the scientific point of view, uh, a, an absolutely fascinating prospect for studying immune responses in people. Um, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, this has been an, an awful thing, of course, um, scientifically fascinating uh, hu- from, from the humanitarian side, awful. Um, but we, we have really taken it upon ourselves and, 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 and collaborating with, with absolute fantastic people at Penn uh, to really try to help define exactly what happens to the immune response during COVID infection. And, and, and really this comes from, um, and this, it's, it's a field that's only, I guess at this point, five months old. We're still as a, as a, as a field learning everything from the bottom up on this. Um, there, there are certainly our expectations. You know, we, 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 as I've described at the beginning of our conversation, you know, we know many things about what an acute viral response should look like. COVID in some senses is no different than another viral infection from the immune system perspective. The thing that's different is, is of course, the, the pathogenesis of this and, and the wide array of, of clinical outcomes that seem to happen and the manifestations of those outcomes are just fascinating. And we're still continuing to try to understand even how the immune response is changing during the acute infection, how it evolves over time. There's questions of whether you generate long-term protective memory, uh, immunity, you know, so if you get challenged again, if you'll be protected or not. I believe that people do so, um, but, but there's been some talk that maybe they don't. And, and what's happened in my lab with this is that, is that we're, we're trying to, we, we've taken a very, we took a step back from what we would normally do. And we just really started off with broadly characterizing everything that we could from a person's, a, a given person's blood who, who had severe disease and really asked the question, well, what's, what's happening to their immune response during this time? And, and there's certainly other labs that are working on this too. Um, we, we have seen some things that other people have, have seen. We've seen lots of things that other people have not seen in, in their research. And, and, and what's allowed us to do that um, is the scale of, of the, the study that we've been able to do because of the, the really fantastic work of the clinicians at the University of Pennsylvania and, and the logistics of setting up the ability to to access these patients that of course the generosity of the patients and being willing to participate in research as well can't cannot understate that or their families but but really the question that we're trying to sort of start with is you know we normally think of the immune response as a good thing but as i said at the beginning of our talk the immune response is also what makes you feel sick 
right? So the question is, is the immune response the culprit of the symptoms here, or is it something else? And, and to be totally honest with you, we don't know the answer to that yet. Okay, well, what, what, what's novel that you've seen about this you know, coronavirus so far in your experimentation? Sure. So there's two two aspects of things that are general aspects of things that 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 we've been looking at to do with the immune responses. And so so there's there's two types of, of immune responses. We haven't we've only talked about T cells so far in our conversation. A little bit about antibodies and B cells, but there's a whole other arm of the immune system uh, which which is called the innate immune system. And this, these are cells mediated uh, the cellular part of the innate response. Uh, are, are mediated by other types of cells that we haven't discussed. And these would include natural killer cells or uh, monocytes or, or neutrophils and so on. And, and so, so probably the most fun, fun thing I've had with this so far, scientifically again, uh, is, is really seeing the impact uh, that severe COVID-19 has on the innate lymphocyte populations. And this is something that that really hasn't been appreciated in a very strong way yet in the the literature. Um, And and that's basically because a lot of the the work that's been done has been just done on a a small number of individuals with severe disease. And and, and in our case, we've been able to look at enough individuals to really see what's happening at more of of a cohort level. And, and, and so what we're seeing is, is sort of very dramatic changes in, in the cell surface protein expression of things that are important for these cells to function. You know, one of the two predominant ways in which, you know, SARS-CoV-2 infects people. I've heard yeah. a lot about the ACE2 receptor. Is yes, that, you know the case. Sure. Yeah, no. So, so, so that's that's virology and, and pathogenesis in that sense uh, the, regarding you know host cell entry. That this is not as far as I know right now. This doesn't really have anything to do with that side of things. So, so in particular, what we're finding there, there's some very early things the immune response tries to do in response to any virus infection or any. Uh, actually infection in general, it doesn't even have to be viruses. And this is the job of the innate immune response. And, and so, so one, of the, one of the major things that we see happen uh, is, is a, a, a large effect on a population of cells called neutrophils. And neutrophils are really uh, something I'm just learning about it in some senses, um, but they're, they're really, really interesting cells uh, they're essentially programmed to die very quickly um, and once they get triggered, and they actually turn over very fast. And what they do is they, they are very efficient at homing to any area of the body where there's something, something's gone wrong. Um, and, and when they get there, they can respond by uh, releasing proteins that will call in other lymphocytes, for example. They can respond, in fact, by dying. And, and, and when they die, they actually uh, release their DNA. And, and in so doing, that also can attract other cells. Uh, they form these things called nets um, and, and essentially um, can, can clog up holes. Uh, there's beautiful videos of this uh, that have been published by Ron Germain that shows neutrophils going into the tissue from the blood to, to plug a hole that was made by a syringe, you know, for example. They're, 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 they're really interesting. They're suicidal cells, right? But, 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 they, but their job is, is very clear. So, so, so what we see happen uh, actually in, in COVID is an extreme elevation of these cells in the blood. 
and and at the same time that the the the, the frequency of these cells elevates um, you have changes in the molecules in their cell surface, which are curious, and we don't really quite know what the what the ramification of this will be. So, so, so two of the proteins that we've been able so far been able to to find that are that are changed are two molecules called CD15 and CD16, and and these proteins have different functions. And, and just to put it very simply, CD15 is involved uh, in telling those cells where to go. So CD15 will be involved in, in making the cell have access, for example, to leave the blood to go into lung tissue, okay, just keeping it COVID-related here. Um, the other protein that we see a large effect on is CD16, and CD16 is not necessarily involved in this trafficking type of thing like CD15 is. CD, CD16 actually binds to antibodies, and, and remember, antibodies are what can bind in this case to viruses and and allow you to to clear those viruses or whatnot and and so CD16 gets affected on the neutrophils as well and in both cases these proteins decrease on the cell surface of the neutrophils in the blood we do not know why that's happening um, we do not know what the functional consequence of that is um, but it's a very pronounced effect in people with severe disease. When we look in people with mild or moderate disease, we do not see this effect. When we look in people who have recovered from COVID, this effect is gone. It's returned to normal. And, and when we look in people who are followed longitudinally, so they check in in the hospital, we get there. So, so, so essentially the way our study works is, is when the patients first come to the hospital, with their severe symptoms, severe enough that they had to go to the hospital. So presumably they're, they're probably been sick for a little while, but now they're starting to, to really have a lot of trouble. That's our first time point. And that's when we see this effect take place. And if we follow those same people, so let's say a week later, in some people, we see a recovery back to normal for these markers. And in other people, it stays the same. They're still uh, uh, substantially decreased. Um, we're trying so to. Under- these markers are localized again to a particular cell type and area on a cell, or are so, they present? Yeah. So, so, so these are cell surface proteins, um, and and they're not found on every cell in your body. It's only certain cells that have these. And 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 for for this, I've just been talking about neutrophils, but we see this same effect happening on essentially every cell type. Uh, that expresses these proteins uh, that are lymphocytes in your blood. So I won't, I won't say it's across your whole body because I don't know that, but when we look in the blood and we look at the different types of cells that express these proteins normally, we see this effect happening on all of them. And, and so, so what we really want to understand is, can this be used? Clearly, it's, we're only seeing it in the most severely infected people. If we were able to take people who, who had been recently infected, but were not severe yet, would we start to see this change? In other words, would this be a prediction of severity? We don't, we hope to, to maybe determine that because then it could be a, a readily accessible way if a person knew they were positive and they could say, oh, I'm starting to see this effect. Maybe I need to, to you know, be careful. Or if, if there's a therapeutic that helps to reduce severity, they would know they needed it, for example. Uh, is this also Do you have any idea on, right? on how long this window is? If it's we a two-week so, window or one week? So we don't know the answer to that yet. Um, certainly, um, the the individuals who we've tested so far, which is actually quite a large number, were probably 
uh, 40 or 50 people now we've, we've observed this in. They, you know, again, the, the way the cohort, of, you know, the way the patients are, you know, we, we don't know exactly when they were infected. So we can only know how long they've had symptoms. And, and so, so there's a little bit of a time shift there across the different people, right? So, so it's not like an animal study where one could infect them on day zero and then five days later we start the experiment. We, we, we don't have that timing. Um, you know, it's one thing you could do if, if, you, if, certain, if a certain person gets very sick in a family and you ask, you know, you have to get permission, of course, but mm-hmm. if you ask the family members that are in the same household that are not yet sick, yeah, they would volunteer to have their blood work done every day for the next, you know, few weeks. You may be yes. able to catch its inception and passing of it. You know, a- absolutely, yeah, and, and you know that that is exactly right. And for us right now at Penn, there's been a lot of talk about trying to do that. We have not yet started to do something like that, and and it's mostly logistics, Richard, because. Because if you know you have to think about who's who's going to go and get that blood, um, who's going to go into the house where there's an infected person and draw blood from the family, right? So that so there's a danger to the healthcare worker there potentially of exposure, and it, it's just logistically is complex. It's not impossible. Other places are doing it. It's just it's something that that right now we're still working on the logistics of this and, and determining whether it will be possible for us to safely do that. Um, but you know you're absolutely right. But we do have the ability. You know, we we do certainly get individuals in in the hospital system who do not have a severe disease yet, and and we are monitoring them as much as you know the the, the ones who get enrolled into the study. There's another study going on uh, at Penn, which is to to prospectively monitor healthcare workers because a lot of them do get exposed, or, or, or a fraction of them, I should say, do get exposed. And so they're, mon- they're monitored prospectively. And so there might be a chance to capture some individuals, like you suggest, in that sense, where we would even have prior to infection, we would have material to have the perfect baseline. And then, you know, in, in those, uh, you know, people who, who do unfortunately do get exposed, then there might be a way to longitudinally follow them as well. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, even in the um more well-characterized issues like, you know, you mentioned HIV, Epstein-Barr, et cetera. Is there any idea on the window that, um, you know, the MHC in those circumstances has been uh, masked or, you know, temporarily changed? Well, okay. Again, remember the MHC is not changed. (laughs) It's not. Well, I'm I'm trying to find the right word for it. Yeah. Well, you know, essentially you're asking what, you know, at what point will the CDH recognize that cells infected, right? So, so that's, you know, at at what time frame will the MHC be on the cell surface of an infected cell and have that virus peptide stuck to it? Okay. Um, That's essentially what you're asking. So, so, and it's, and it's, it's actually a very good question. In, in, in humans, and there's, a, there's only a couple of studies that have done this, and, and again, with HIV, again, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. Obviously, you cannot experimentally infect a person with HIV, so you can't do track things in an exact way, but there's, but there's two groups that have done very, very careful tracking of high-risk individuals and follow them prospectively uh, to try to capture exposure events. And in those studies, one, one run by the Army and one run by the Reagan Institute, uh, both studies were run uh, in different countries in Africa, they were able to get the timing down quite, 
carefully uh, of when uh, the first immune responses appear um, and when the virus is sort of peaking in severity during that early period of time. Um, and so, so the, the, the virus window, it, the peak virus is, you know, somewhere between, between 10 to, let's say, 17 days. Day 14 is, is two weeks is typically sort of post-exposure is, is, is the highest peak, probably on average. The immune response in terms of CD8s that would be recognizing MHC starts to, to appear as soon as the virus appears. It can, it can be, and that, and that might be day seven to, to eight, you might start, you know, when the virus starts to really pick up its replication and, and then you're getting exposure events to the immune system, the, you know, the day eight is, is, would be very hard to find in people, but in animal models, you can find things that early happening um, where you can go in, in, into more body tissues where the virus is replicating. In, in humans, you can't do that as well. Um, so we know sort of that timing uh, frame, time frame. So, so in COVID, we've also been trying to do T cell responses. The, the majority of publications or almost the entirety of publications on this right now are looking in, in people who have already recovered from disease. Logistically, it's a little complex to do T cell work on people who are actively infected because of biohazard uh, situations. Uh, but we've, you know, we're, we're, we've looked in some people who have recovered and we're, we're in the process of getting that, that type of work up. And then once we have a safe protocol to, to work with people who are actively infected, if, if there can be a safe protocol, then we'll try to define early T cell responses as well. Okay. I'm sure a lot of things will be learned that will tie into the initial latency period you know, where there's no symptoms until someone's symptomatic. So I'm yeah. sure a lot will be found there. Yeah. Well, very good. Well, Mike, we're, we're, uh, we're just about out of time. I hope I didn't run you around through too many viruses. No, it's really a pleasure. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, what's the best way for people to learn more about your efforts? So uh, we have a website, which is uh, betslab.org, so B-E-T-T-S-L-A-B dot O-R-G. Uh, we've actually just launched that website. Alternatively, uh, people are welcome to, to, to look me up uh, and contact me. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to answer questions. And, and we have a Twitter account, which is at Bets Lab. So, yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.